But uh, what we're doing over these Sunday evenings is looking at different subjects. Um, last week we looked at purpose. Tonight we're looking at the whole subject of doubt. And uh, it's something that is very real for people who are Christians and for people who aren't Christians. Um, how do you know what you can believe? How do you know um, whether you are a Christian? How do you know whether you've got faith? What does faith look like? What does faith feel like? What sort of knowledge is faith? What sort of experience do you have to have or not have in order to be a Christian? If you're a Christian and you have doubts, does that mean you've stopped being a Christian? That's the sort of area that we're going to explore uh, for the next few minutes. And I want to begin uh, by telling you about something that happened 10 years ago. Uh, nearly 10 years ago now, um, Kathy, my wife, and I were asked to go to Kenya uh, on behalf of World Vision to make a, a sort of DVD resource for church leaders in the UK to see how the church in Africa were responding to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Uh, neither Kathy or myself had ever been to Africa before, so we were great candidates for them to follow us around with a film crew as we discovered what the church in Africa was doing. And we, we had a great time for 10 days. We had all sorts of uh, adventures, went on safari and, and did all sorts of things, visiting Nairobi and flying to Kenya's second largest city, Kisumu, which is about the same size as Edinburgh. And at that time, 40% of the population were HIV positive. And uh, in order to make this DVD resource, we had a film crew with us. Uh, and every day would start with us coming after breakfast, uh, being mic'd up with a radio mic that went places you don't want to know about. And uh, for the whole of the day, we would wear a radio mic for about eight hours, and uh, the cameraman and the sound technician would follow us around. And during the course of that 10 days, we got to know each other fairly well. Uh, we got to know the cameraman fairly well. We got to know the sound technician fairly well, as they put um, microphones where microphones shouldn't really go. And we talked about what they'd done with their work life. And they were incredibly experienced um, filmmakers and sound technicians. They traveled all over the world they, making documentaries. They'd been uh, into war zones. They'd been into places of famine. They'd been all over the world. And we talked with them about their experiences, usually late at night over a tusk of beer. And we talked about life, and we talked about faith. They knew the job that I did. They knew that I led a church here in Scotland. And we visited Christian projects with World Vision and were seeing what the church was doing. And we talked most evenings about what they believed, what they believed about God, what they believed about life, what they believed about politics, what they believed about the world, and why lots of the things that they'd experienced made it really, really difficult for them to believe in a God of love. Because they'd seen some horrendous things around the world, they really struggled, in view of what they'd seen, to reconcile their experiences with the idea of a God of love who was somehow in charge of the world. Well, that was how lots of our conversations went. But one particular conversation was different. Halfway through the trip, we flew from Nairobi to Kisumu again. Only this time, it was a bit different. The flight uh, takes about an hour to do. Uh, you can drive it, but it takes four or five hours uh, to get from Nairobi over to Kisumu in the west, which is right on uh, the shore of Lake Victoria. 
And we took off from Nairobi. It was a modern jet plane, and we, we took off with Kenyan Airways, and everything was hunky-dory till about 20 minutes out of Nairobi. Now, we were flying over the Rift Valley. We were flying over the Serengeti. Um, if you've ever seen a David Attenborough documentary, he's made a documentary, or hundreds, about the Serengeti. Think about that place where the antelope cross, the water buffalo are there, the alligators are there, there are lions, there are cheetahs. We were flying over that. We knew that we were flying over that. 20 minutes out of Nairobi, the pilot came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seatbelts are fastened because we're about to enter quite a heavy period of turbulence. And we looked out of the window, and it was one of those occasions where you suddenly start to think, oh, heck, because we could see lightning uh, in the sky flashing ahead of us. And then we started to go up and down, and we started to go round and round. And, we sat, and, and normally, I'm not good in these situations. Um, it's just wonders for your prayer life, but um, I normally am throwing up. But actually, I was okay. I thought, this is quite fun. It was like being on a fair, fun, you know, fair ride. And uh, we were going up and down and bouncing around. There was thunder. There was lightning. And that was, we were doing all that. And then eventually, we made it to over Kisumu. And we made it to over Lake Victoria. And they put us in a holding pattern over Lake Victoria. And we started to go round and round. And we were thinking, this is a bit strange. Why don't we just land at Kisumu? Well, the problem is that in Kisumu, the, the runway, as such, uh, goes out into Lake Victoria. And the pilot came on after about 15 minutes of going over Lake Victoria. And again, we're all thinking there are alligators down there. There are crocodiles. You know, who knows what there are down there? If we go down into Lake Victoria, that's it. We're history. And then the pilot came on and said, uh, we're really sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but we think that down in Kasumu on the runway, they've got wind shear. And what wind shear is, is when the wind is going right across the runway, and it makes it almost impossible to land. He said, well, we'll stay up here for another few minutes, but in five minutes' time, uh, it, we reach that critical point where we're going to have to make a decision about whether to go into Kisumu and try and land with the wind, which is about 90 miles an hour, going right across the runway, or whether we decide to go back to Nairobi. By this time, conversation in the cabin was non-existent. You could almost feel people gripping their seats, Five minutes passed, still going round. And then the pilot came on and said, very sorry, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the wind shear has actually increased uh, in Kasumu, so we're going to have to go back to Nairobi, and we're going to have to land in Nairobi, and then we're going to have to try again tomorrow morning. There was an audible groan from uh, the 60 of us who were on the plane, because we knew what we had come through. So therefore, we knew what we were going back into. And the pilot turned the plane around, and we started to go back. And again, the lightning and the thunder started to go off at the edge of the wings. And you're thinking, is it okay if a plane is hit by lightning? And what's going to happen? And we started again to go up and down, and we started to go from side to side. And it was at that moment the sound technician turned to me. I can't accurately described the color of his face. It was somewhere between yellow and green, but it was very pale as well. And he said, tell me what happens on an alpha course. 
How do you know what happens to you when you die? How can you believe in God? How can I be certain that if I was to die tonight on this plane, that I would go to heaven? It was fascinating. Faced with the evidence around him of what he saw, all these hypothetical wonderings about the suffering in the world, all the sort of apologetic answers about why there is pain in the world and whether you're an atheist or not, or whether you can believe in God or not, all that disappeared. All this guy wanted to know as his, as his hands gripped and the knuckles were white as he gripped his seat as we went up and down was, how can I know God? Because I think I'm going to meet him quite quickly. <laughs> now, we got back to Nairobi. It was absolutely fine. And we got to Nairobi, back to Kisumu the next morning. But actually, questions of faith and doubt can be a bit like that. We can all have these doubts and questions. How can we believe in God? How can we have faith? Are we allowed to doubt? What sort of knowledge is faith? Is faith rational or irrational? Is faith scientific or is scientific knowledge different to faith? Is faith evidence-based? Is it experiential or is it reasoned? And how do we know who to believe? How do we know who to trust? And if you have faith, then are you, in fact, allowed to doubt? Does having faith mean that you never doubt, or are you allowed to still have questions? Or do you have to have all your questions answered before you can have faith? And if you are a Christian and then start to have doubts, does that mean that you stopped being a Christian? Well, these type of questions have always been around, but perhaps they're getting harder to ask and perhaps harder to answer. Because the way in which we think and the credibility of who we trust and believe has changed over the last 50 years or so. Scientific knowledge was for years seen as true, reliable. For those of us who are old enough, if we saw a program and something on it called Tomorrow's World, we knew that it was true even though it never came true. Uh, we, were, we were told it was true, and we believed it was true because it was scientific. But over the last 20, 30 years, that's changed. Science and reason, modernity and rationalism have been exposed, really. The first crack in this wall was the Challenger disaster in 1986. I know some of you weren't old enough uh, to be born in 1986, but this was the space shuttle that blew up seven or eight seconds after blastoff. And the Challenger disaster, followed by the nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl, events like 9-11, 7-7, the crash of 2008, all these things have just sort of picked away at this idea that through science, our world was getting better and better. There was actually a, 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 a science week that Radio One had in 1998, and the jingle that they, that they played was, everything's getting better with science. Well, over the last 20 or 30 years, with things like climate change and other things, We've seen that contrary to what we thought for the previous three or four hundred years, the world, in fact, is not getting better and better. We're not making more and more progress. 
We believed, as Dream sang, uh, as Tony Blair was elected in 1997, that things could only get better. But since 1997, things haven't got better. In fact, they've got worse. And what seemed to be a world of endless possibilities and limitless improvement has become a world of cynicism and mistrust, disillusionment and betrayal. For me, this was evidenced by quite dramatic news uh, last week when I discovered that 30 years ago, clergy, that's people like me and Libby and Rich and James, we were the most trusted professionals in the UK. There was a survey done recently that showed that in the UK, we have fallen behind hairdressers in terms of people that you can trust. All the scandals that have affected the church across the world, um, as evidenced by the film Spotlight that's just come out, uh, showing all the, the, the sort of uh, conspiracies behind the scenes in Boston uh, and the Roman Catholic Church, and no denomination has been uh, short of them, has taken away from the trustworthiness of people that do my job, the people that do the role that Libby does, the role that Rich and James do, professional clergy. Now, people believe that clergy are more likely to lie than doctors, teachers, judges, scientists, and hairdressers. And the younger that you are, the less likely you are to trust the church. In a survey of European institutions, things like the law, the monarchy, etc., the church came third in people over the age of 50 in institutions that they trust. In under-35s, it had a very different ranking. The church came 13th out of 13. People under the age of 35 really struggle to believe people in the church. And yet that generation, people under the age of 30, 35, paradoxically, is also a generation that's full of contradictions. A generation that is, at the same time, incredibly relational, but also remarkably self-centered. Full of fluidity, diversity, complexity, uncertainty, but also with a heightened mistrust in institutions or relationships. But at the same time, there remains a deep desire for authenticity and rootedness. People under the age of 30, perhaps more passionately than certainly when I was that age, want to know the truth. But paradoxically, it can also, for people under the age of 30, therefore, make doubt more difficult to handle. Because if one of your sort of values in the generation that's 30, 35 and under is authenticity, well, does it mean, in order to be authentic, that you stop coming to church or calling yourself a Christian if you have doubts? You see the logic. If you're a Christian, you don't have doubts, so you can't keep on coming to church. If you are a Christian, you can't have doubts, but you do have doubts, well, that somehow disqualifies you. And to be true to yourself, you stop coming to church and stop, perhaps, calling yourself a Christian. Well, how do you know who to believe? And if you believe, is it okay to doubt? Well, um, and you can trust me, I'm a clergyman, um, the Bible, as we look at it, is full of people who doubted. Time and time again, in the Old and New Testament, there are people who doubt. People who doubt God and people who doubt themselves. 
The book of Psalms, for example, 150 poems and prayers, confessions and songs are full of doubt. They're full of faith as well, but they're full of doubt. These are raw, gut, emotionally wrenched prayers where people don't hide from God. They shout at God and they tell God how they're feeling. Characters like Job in the Old Testament, Thomas in the New Testament, doubt again and again. Adam and Sarah, Jacob and Job, Thomas and Martha, Peter and John the Baptist, even Jesus himself, ask questions and pray prayers that are full of doubt. Listen, for example, to what happens to John the Baptist. Carrie Gordon is going to come and read a passage from Matthew's Gospel where John the Baptist is beginning to doubt. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was imprisoned, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who's come or should we expect it someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is, any of, of, uh, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John disi John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed in the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one wh whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, bef prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Thanks, Karen. It's quite striking. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, the one who proclaims and announces that Jesus is the Messiah, this strange figure who goes out into the wilderness dressed in strange clothes, who eats only wild uh, locusts and honey, a uh, very strange sort of enigmatic character, the one who'd predicted and announced the coming of Jesus as the Messiah, now doubts whether Jesus really is the real deal. You see, at the height of his popularity, John, the cousin of Jesus, had been the person that everybody wanted to hear. Crowds had flocked to listen to him. His teaching had been respected and people had queued up to be baptized as his followers. That's what you did in the ancient world. You were baptized, showing that you wanted to follow this particular rabbi. You were baptized into their school. You showed that you were their follower, their disciple, by being baptized. And John's followers outnumbered the followers of Jesus, probably four or five to one to begin with. At the height of his popularity, John had been the person that everybody wanted to hear. But now two years later, in the passage that Carrie read for us, 
things are very different for John. Now here he is in prison. No longer the go-to preacher, able to rant at power, the religious establishment, or the political leaders of his day. Those views have got him into prison, as King Herod had taken exception to his criticism. And so here we find John languishing in a jail cell in the place called the Fortress of Macarius, in the burning heat of the desert by the Dead Sea. And there he is in a prison cell, and the doubts begin to come. And so he sends word, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? Or to put it another way, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, why am I in prison? If you really are God's chosen one, if you are God's messenger, if you are God's anointed one, if you're the one who's going to come and rescue God's people, why don't you start with rescuing me from this particular prison cell, from this particular jail? I was the one, Jesus, who told people who you were. But things haven't turned out the way I thought they should. Things have turned out very differently. And here am I stuck in prison. Have I missed something? Facing certain death, John questions Jesus' credentials. He questions the decisions that he has made based on his faith. Because life has not turned out the way he thought it should. And so, because he's human, John begins to doubt. Are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? What I find telling is the response that Jesus offers to John. There's no rebuke. There's no disappointment from Jesus to his cousin. What we see, rather, is quiet understanding and an appeal to John's followers to look at the evidence. John's followers leave John in prison and go to find Jesus, and they tell Jesus what John has said. And John tells, Jesus tells them to go back to John with these words. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Just like the sound technician that I was talking to in a plane in the middle of a Kenyan thunderstorm, John the Baptist wanted real answers to real questions. And what Jesus gave John the Baptist was real evidence. He responded with patience, he responded with mercy, but he made faith accessible. Accessible to John in the middle of his doubts and accessible, I think, also to people like you and people like me. I think it is quite striking again and again and again that Jesus is never hard on doubt. Perhaps because he himself knew what it was to be human and perhaps even, therefore, to doubt. Yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. Now, this 
view caused enormous controversy in the early church. People were put to death for what I'm saying. But if there isn't the possibility that Jesus doubted, then he wasn't fully human. Yes, he was God become a human being, but he was also fully human. And being fully human meant that he doubted. He doubts, perhaps, in Gethsemane, where just hours before he's put to death, he cries out to God, saying, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from my lips. He, he sweats in such an anguished way, we're told, that his sweat fell like blood. On the cross, he cries out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If that's not doubt, I don't know what is. Now, it's important at this stage to say what doubt is and what doubt isn't. Doubt isn't skepticism. That's very different. Skepticism is the decision to doubt everything deliberately as a matter of principle. Neither is doubt the same as unbelief. Unbelief is really a decision not to have faith in God. Skepticism and unbelief are very different to doubt. Doubt has been described as faith in two minds. Asking questions, voicing uncertainty, but within a context of wanting to believe. One theologian theologian even described it like this. He said, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. You have to have doubt in order to have faith. The two actually go hand in hand. It's an interesting way of describing it. But the fact is that we will always doubt, and we need it to have faith. Another writer called Ronald Rollheiser put it this way, beautifully. In this life, he said, all our symphonies remain unfinished. In this life, all our symphonies remain unfinished. We are built for the infinite. Grand canyons without a bottom. Because of that, we will, this side of eternity, always be lonely, restless, incomplete, living in the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable. And what Rollheiser is basically saying is that part of being human means that our knowledge of who God is will always be limited. God will always be bigger than our experience of who he is. God will always be bigger than our interpretation of who God is. God will always be bigger than our language where we try and describe what God is like. God will always be bigger than our experience of who God is. God will always be bigger than our doctrine about God. God will always be bigger than our creedal statements, important though they are, as important though doctrine is. They are really, really important. But God will always be bigger than our doctrine or who we think God is. Because God is always bigger. 
That's the whole point about God. That's why God's God and we're not. Right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, the mistake, the big thing that, that the devil and then Adam thought that they could do is they could become like God. They could understand the world, the universe, as God does. They wanted to make themselves the same as God. So we have to accept that as part of being human, we will always doubt. We will never know 100%. There might be times when we hit 90. There might be times when we hit 94. But there will always be an element of doubt. Because if there isn't, then we haven't got faith. We may have something else, arrogance, certainty, but it won't actually be faith. We will always doubt this side of eternity. Our understanding will always be limited, finite, because we are not God. But just in the way that Jesus responded to people who came up to him with their doubts, kindly, he always takes us where we are. He always accepts us for who we are. Imperfect, full of doubt and full of faith, and meets us where we are, giving us the evidence of his life, his death, his resurrection, of our experience, perhaps, of his love and forgiveness, answering our real questions with real answers. And he calls us not to blind obedience or even blind faith, but to trust. Faith is not belief without proof, but faith is trust without reservation. When I doubt, and I do, even though I'm paid to be a Christian, even though I'm paid to pray, even though I'm paid to work for the church, there are lots of times, probably at least once a month if I'm honest, where I wake up and I think, what happens if it's not true? What happens if for the last 38 years of being a Christian, or the last 33 years of working for churches and Christian charities and organizations, if all of that has been a waste of time, how do I know that what I'm doing is true? How do I know that what I believe is right? What I do is to be honest with myself and to be honest with God. What I do is to go back and look at the evidence, to go back and look at the basics of the Christian faith, to go back to Jesus and the cross. I go back to my experience of God. I go back to when I've known his forgiveness, when I've known his provision for me. The communion table that we're about to gather around this evening is a great place for people who doubt. People like you and people like me. The communion table is not a place for people who never doubt. The arrogant have no place around this table. But the humble, the frail, the fragile, the weak, the honest, 
Those of us who know that we're not good enough for God, those of us who know that we need God's unconditional love and mercy and forgiveness and patience and kindness, who know that we have not got life sussed and we have not got faith sussed, then there's a place for us around this table. The doubters, the John the Baptists, the Thomases, there's always room for us. And the question very simply tonight, for you and for me, is will we believe? Will we trust? Will we believe the evidence of history, the evidence of our own experience, the evidence of the Bible, the evidence of who Jesus is, the evidence of his life and death and resurrection? And will we come this evening again and simply come with hands that are open and say, Lord, would you feed me? Would you meet with me? Would you take all my doubts and would you take all my faith and would you meet me where I am tonight? Maybe even for the first time. Maybe there's someone here this evening and you've thought, I've got to have everything sussed all my questions answered before I can become a Christian. I thought that before I became a Christian. Spent about 18 months talking to people, reading books, and I was 17, 18, and eventually I decided, okay, God, let's give it a go. That was my prayer of commitment. wasn't very orthodox. wasn't very proper. Okay, God, let's give it a go. And I thought that was going to be it. I would have no more questions. I did get lots of answers, but in the last 38 years, I've just got more and more questions. But they're different questions. They're deeper questions. And the answers that I find in Jesus are more and more satisfying. If you want to know how to make that step this evening, perhaps even for the first time, then I'd love to chat with you afterwards, or Libby, would love to talk to you so we can help you begin that journey of faith that won't mean that you will never doubt again but may well mean that you end up with a whole set of different questions as the band come and prepare to lead us in the song let's pray